0: Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 5 of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. This is the second time I'm recording this half of the episode, and hopefully this time it doesn't sound like I am buried under sand. So, for the first episodes of this podcast, we have been stuck pretty much in Eastern Europe and Western Asia, but today we are going to take a big leap all the way over to North America in what is today Mexico and the southern United States. In 1833, however, which is when our story begins, it was just all Mexico. This was the year in which Mexico had their very first presidential election, as they were a newly independent republic. The winner of this election was a man named Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, more famously known just as Santa Ana. And this presidency was intended to work very similarly to the presidency of the United States of America, in that it was a federal Republican system. What this means is that the central federal government has some overarching power over the states and territories within its reach, but generally a lot of power is devolved down at the state and local level, which all have their own elected officials. Generally, the people like this method of rule, as they can elect their own officials for their own cultures within their separate states. But this does mean that the federal government is lacking a bit of power, which they tend to get a bit envious of. And this is exactly what happened in Mexico, because when you have your own separate local elections, you tend to breed some sort of political opposition, and Santa Ana decided that he did not like opposition within his government. That is, of course, a gross oversimplification, but I'm going to sort of leave it at that because that's not what the primary focus of our story is today. So, Santa Ana began to centralize power at the federal level. He suspended the Constitution, he disbanded Congress, states lost their legal and fiscal autonomy, and even lost their statehood. States became departments governors became well governors actually stayed governors but instead of being elected they were appointed by the federal government and state legislatures were occupied by santa anna's military as i'm sure you can imagine this was a wildly unpopular move and santa anna faced opposition across the country but we are going to stay focused on the north for the duration of our story Santa Ana's political opponents in this area sought to expel his appointed men and reestablish the constitution in an effort to bring about the return of the federal republican system. One of the leaders of this opposition was a man named Antonio Canales Rocío. He was a veteran of the Apache wars and on November 3, 1838, he issued a public demand for the return of the federal system and, if you can believe it, this was promptly ignored. Canales seems to have been slightly insulted by this, because sometime in January of 1839, he summoned a council in Laredo, which is a local capital, at which the Constitution was unanimously reapproved. Of course, this reapproval was also ignored by Santa Ana's central government, because who really cares what some bumpkins up in the north have to say, but it meant something to Canales and his men. Canales was so excited about this political rebellion that he decided to start an armed rebellion, and immediately set out building an army in the local countryside in order to oppose any backlash from Santa Ana. Canales didn't have the funds for a proper army, so his army ended up consisting mostly of local Native Americans as well as vaqueros, which are like Mexican cowboys. But this would have to do. After eight months of recruiting up in the north, Canales' army eventually met a contingent of the Central Mexican Army at a small town called Mier on October 3, 1839. Canales' men were eager to get the show on the road, and so with great excitement, they charged into town and managed to encircle the Centralist men, forcing their surrender. They captured 350 men, all of which then defected to their cause, although it seems likely to me that this wasn't necessarily of their own free will. This victory was a very big deal. It made Canales extremely popular in the north, and instead of having to run around looking for fresh recruits and supplies, these provisions, and even money, began to flow freely to him. He stayed in Mier until mid-November in order to ensure that he actually received all of this fresh, free stuff. But then he began a march east to the coast, headed to a town called Matamoros. He reached Matamoros sometime around late November, early December. The dates aren't quite clear, but when he got there, he was not super happy with what he found. In Matamoros, there was a contingent of 1500 of Santa Ana's men, which when stood against Canales 1000 men, looked pretty scary. I think it's worth mentioning that these Centralist forces were under the command of a man named Valentin Canalizo, who would go on to be a future president of the Mexican Republic. Although, at that time, he was very much still a political puppet of Santa Ana. So, Canales now stood outside the gates of Matamoros, thoroughly outnumbered by Canelizo's men, and decided that it just wasn't worth the fight. Canales ordered his men to fall back, and they marched all the way west to Monterey, which, mind you, is about a 170-mile march. At Monterey, Canales found another contingent of Centralist men, which is exactly what he was looking for, because it seemed that he thought he could take these men. This particular force was commanded by a man by the name of Mariano Arista, who was also a future president of Mexico, but it should be known that during his time in the presidency, Arista was a staunch opponent of Santa Ana. However, it's clear that he was not an opponent yet, as he was a general in his army. So, in mid-December of 1839, Canales sent out a force of 300 cavalrymen, commanded by Colonel Jose Antonio de Zapata, to harry the outskirts of Monterey in hopes of drawing Arista and his forces out of the city. And surprisingly enough, this very obvious diversion actually worked and left the city unguarded, which allowed Canales and his main force to capture and dig in at a convent within the city. This put Arista in a very difficult position. He had allowed part of his city to be occupied by an enemy force without even a fight, but it seems that he did have one trick up his sleeve. After just a week or two of occupation, Canales awoke on the morning of December 27th, 1839 to find that spies within his camp had convinced no less than 700 of his 1,000 troops to abandon the rebel. To use a very technical, political, and military term, Canales was now screwed, so he fled with his remaining 300 men out of the city. Luckily for Canales, it seems that Arista was satisfied with this victory, because we don't hear of any pursuit. Instead, the next we hear of the rebel, he is back in Laredo on January 17th of 1840. And that date is very important for our story, because it is on that day that government officials from the states of Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas convened and jointly declared their secession from Mexico thus establishing the Republic of the Rio Grande. If you can believe it, the Republic was named as such because the Rio Grande flowed through their claimed territory. While the rebels were very happy about this, I'm sure, the actual governors of those three states, as well as the state's legislatures, did not support the breakaway state. Instead, they called out to Santa Ana's central government looking for military aid. Santa Anna responded to these pleas by dispatching none other than Arista to deal with the situation. I'm sure Canales was anxious to face the man that had defeated him before, but he was now the commander-in-chief of his own breakaway republic, which meant he had a duty to defend the republic and their government from a foreign invading threat, which Arista technically was in their eyes. In mid-March of 1840, Arista arrived in the vicinity of Laredo, which was the capital of the newborn Republic of the Rio Grande, prompting the government of the Republic to flee 170 miles northeast to the city of Victoria in what is now Texas. Meanwhile, Canales and his men stayed behind in order to defend their government. On March 24th, Canales and his army of 400 men reached the town of Morelos, which is not far from Laredo. He sent Zapata into town with 30 men in order to secure provisions for the Republic of the Rio Grande's army. But it was at that moment that it was revealed that Morelos had been occupied by Arista's army of 1,800 men already. Believe it or not, a fight of 30 against 1800 is not going to go well for the 30, so Zapata was forced to surrender. Arista offered him a full pardon if he would swear allegiance to Mexico and abandon the Republic of the Rio Grande, but the cavalry commander refused. It was now March 25th. Canales' most capable commander was in the custody of Arista, and he had no choice but to attempt to rescue him, so he attacked Arista head-on. This went about as well as you would imagine it could. He lost 250 of his 400 men in the process, and he failed to rescue Zapata. Canale's army was now smaller than ever, standing at a whopping 150 men, so he was forced to retreat all the way north to San Antonio, Texas. On March 29th, after five days in custody, Zapata faced a grim fate. His head was placed on a spike outside his very small hometown of Guerrero. This was to serve as a warning to his wife and children, as well as any aspiring Federalists in the area. And this threat would have been very personal, because I wasn't lying when I said Guerrero was a small town. Even today, it has a population of 959. So if my calculations are right, as a rough estimate, you can assume that in 1840, there were maybe 61 total people living in the area. Everyone would have seen this threat. Everyone, of course, except Canales. He was busy up north in Texas rebuilding his army, which he brought eventually to almost 800 men. And I know I keep throwing these numbers at you as to how big each force was, and I'm sure that might be a little bit annoying, but there is a reason for it. I'm really trying to hammer home the idea that the Republic of the Rio Grande really never stood a chance. At no point has Canales commanded more than 1,000 men, and you're going to need a lot more than that in order to effectively break away from the fully formed government of Mexico. And I'm sure Canales knew this too, but he and those involved in the formation of the Republic of the Rio Grande clearly felt that it was worth trying anyway, because they were so staunchly opposed to Santa Ana's hostile takeover of the central Mexican government. And so this brings us to the moment that I'm sure Canales knew was coming all along. It was time for his last stand. It was now late October, a full seven months after Zapata's death, and Canales was finally on the move against Arista once again. Canales dispatched 350 men to steal horses from Mexican towns in the countryside. These men were led by Samuel Jordan, a Texan, and Juan Milano, who was Canales' own brother-in-law. When they eventually reached the city of Saltillo, they were greeted by a sizable Mexican force. Knowing that a battle was imminent, Canales dispatched the bulk of his army under the command of Colonel Lopez. They arrived in the city on October 25th. Unbeknownst to both Canales and Jordan, however, Milano and Lopez were both traitors. They had secretly made talks with the central Mexican government, And switched over to their side. So as battle drew near, Lopez ordered Jordan and his men to take up position in a mountain pass. There they would have been extremely vulnerable and thoroughly trapped. And Jordan sensed this danger, so he and the remaining Republic of the Rio Grande loyalists turned around and fought their way out. Jordan led his men all the way back north to Texas, and they promptly abandoned the Rio Grande's cause as a result. This betrayal meant that the overwhelming majority of Canales' army had been defeated, disbanded, or had defected. He therefore had no choice but to enter talks with Arista and discuss a surrender. And so, on November 6th, the day finally came, and Canales surrendered to Arista for which he was offered a position as an officer in the Centralist Army. A few days later, sometime around November 10th, the Republic of the Rio Grande's government returned to Laredo from their exile in Texas, where their president officially surrendered and disbanded the republic. As a part of the terms of the surrender, no one involved with the rebellion was to be harmed, and all debts that had been accrued by the Republic of the Rio Grande were absorbed by Mexico. And so that puts an end to the story of the Republic of the Rio Grande. Now, why was this land forgotten? I think this one is due to the unnecessarily complex history of Mexican independence and state formation. In the last 200 years, what we now know as Mexico has gone through something like half a dozen different republics and two or three different monarchies. Throughout all of these civil wars, coup d'etats, and revolutions, it's little wonder that a little breakaway republic in the north has largely been swept under the rug during the discussion of Mexican history as a whole. This is further complicated by the fact that this isn't even necessarily just Mexican history. The Republic of the Rio Grande claimed a territory that is now part of both Mexico and the United States, So when we're discussing American history, it might pop up. When we're discussing Mexican history, it might pop up. Or, more likely, it will not pop up during either. And that's probably why, unless you live in the area that these events took place in today, you have never heard of the Republic of the Rio Grande. So thank you all for listening to the fifth episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. I know this one was a little bit on the shorter end. I'm still trying to work out how much writing I have to do to make a full-length episode. But I appreciate you tuning in anyway, and I will see you again next week.